I'm Wendy Hartsock, science and peptide enthusiast. In this episode of Exploration Science, we meet up with Ved Trivastava. Ved is a former president of the American Peptide Society, a past chair of the American Peptide Symposium, a prolific book author, and an all things peptide expert. He walks us through the approval process for peptide therapeutics as well as taking a walk down memory lane as we discuss a little bit of peptide history. Ved, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the show. I really appreciate it and I'm excited to learn more about peptide therapeutics and also your experience as a peptide chemist. My experience uh, in a peptide spans more than about 25 years in the peptide area. And that includes peptide medicinal chemistry, formulation, chemistry, manufacturing, control, and the drug delivery. So, and my current job, the day job is as vice president of chemistry at Actus Oncology. And prior to that, I was in GlaxoSmithKline and then Amelin Pharmaceutics, and then founded a couple of companies that were being acquired. So that gave a lot of, a lot of opportunity to work with the different uh, peptide synthesis technologies, peptide optimization technologies, peptide delivery technologies. And I feel, uh, Wendy, really fortunate and lucky that uh, I work with a great group of people, talented scientists, and, and was part of the several drugs that went to the develop, clinical development. And some of those went to the, all the way to the market. This, for example, we had first marketed GLP-1 agonist, uh, Exonati, which, which is 39 amino acid sequence, and it's a bieta, first in class for type 2 uh, diabetes, for treatment of type 2 diabetes. The second was first amylin agonist molecule that was bromelantide, 37 amino acid, that went to uh, uh, in for type 1 and type 2 diabetes under the similar brand name. Okay. Then again, first weekly, GLP-1 agonist, which is by, by Durian, uh, therefore treatment of once in a week for type 2 diabetes. And then uh, very lately, I was involved in the first uh, uh, implantable delivery technology that is uh, kind of like a, a by, uh, extension of Bayada as a once in a year a delivery of, of the GLP-1 agonist. So I think it's just uh, it's been very fortunate uh, among those, and and part of the U.S. Pharmacopeia and different advisory board, but most importantly, I learned peptide science from synthesis, like I mentioned before, and uh, with John Stewart's group where we learned historical aspect of that almost every synthesizer. Right. Let me, let me pause you there. That's awesome. I want to know a couple of things about that. Talk to me about your early experience with John Stewart and why you decided to, to join his group. And maybe even talk a little bit about who John Stewart was um, for maybe some people who don't know. Yes. So jo Professor John Stewart uh, uh, had worked very close together with Bruce Merrifield. Bruce Merrifield got a Nobel Prize for peptide synthesis. John uh, Stewart and Bruce did the B master's degree together, BS degree together with the same professor, Woolley. And then they, they became professor together, they worked together. And the Bruce Merrifield, as I understood, uh, uh, he came up with the concept solitary synthesis. And the concept of solitary synthesis has been trans 
transform uh, into a peptide synthesizer. And peptide synthesizer, the design and idea and implementation all came from Johnny Stewart. He was not a, a peptide biologist, but he was an engineer uh, by heart. And he built and designed the entire peptide synthesizer. I think there's two first made. One is at Smithsonian, another one was in his lab. Uh, 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 still working in early days when we were there. Yeah. And he's the uh, he's the one who first book in uh, first book was written on using a bot uh, mm -hmm. uh, chemistry solid phase synthesis. That that book was a kind of like a bible for ages until F mark synthesis came in and Shepard came in and then uh, it developed. Yeah. So that was a John Stewart's legacy. Uh, after that, he became known for Brady Cannon antagonist, Mr. Brady Cannon. Uh, and he's just amazing person. Right. And so you you did your graduate studies with? with no, him? I did a postdoc with him. Okay. And I was with Charles Stammer's group before. Okay. Charles Stammer, Professor Charles Stammer, is one of uh, the great pioneers in the early days. He is the one who pioneered or kind of like uh, propagated this whole non-natural amino acid. He brought AIB early days with working with Elizabeth Carr, then dehydroamino acid, then cyclopropane amino acid. In 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we used to call him father of non-natural amino acid as a joke to all him because he's the one who really uh, brought this non-natural amino acid into the picture in a peptide, used to incorporate into the peptide, not only design and synthesize non-natural amino acid, especially dehydrocyclopropane, but also incorporate into the peptide and develop the conformational constraint and understand the conformational properties of the peptides. So he was very pioneer, unfortunately passed away for uh, ages, 20 years ago, uh, well, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. So I was uh, in his group first uh, early days, Mm -hmm. And then John Sewer called him that he's looking somebody um, to do this kind of work in his lab. And, and, and here we go. Yeah, and that, that was in Colorado, right? That was in Colorado. Yeah. John yeah, Stewart right. was in the University of Georgia. And then and from Colorado, you went to which Yeah, Carl, then I have a small company, and then uh, Amlin Pharmaceuticals, yeah. then GlaxoSmithKline, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then Intarsia, and now right. Years right. That's great. And all about therapeutic discovery of peptide therapeutics since then. And that's really where you've spent, yeah, your, your time and efforts. And so we were talking before about, you know, the different books that you've published and different resources that are out there. And, you know, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today was sort of your, you know, your experience with peptide therapeutics, um, but also, you know, how do we really transition from the discovery phase to inhuman to commercial? I think, you know, for me, I know I lack understanding and I was a chemist at a bench, at the bench in, you know, a pharmaceutical company, but there are just things that we don't know necessarily when we're in the discovery phase. Um, so it'd be nice to have an overview. Okay, yeah, that that's a good word overview because this is a topic for that. Uh, three or four days in a row <laughs> to go on and on. And uh, so the drug discovery for peptide therapeutics is basically uh, not much of a different than a small molecule, but there's a lot of a, a state of the art 
a technology that's involved in the uh, for peptide therapeutic reduction. So first, very early stage is a drug discovery. I mean, it's a discovery of a peptide. Uh, uh, that includes two things. One, where you don't have any starting point for uh, converting a peptide. So you design the libraries and we used to work early days, just like nowadays the Pepti Dream is doing. We used to have early days, there's about 29,000, uh, I mean, say there's so 20,000 human peptides circulating in, in, in the body. We don't know how they are, how, how they work. And then it's about 2,800 uh, uh, peptides on, on animal species. So, so if you don't know uh, uh, some of those peptides, so basically you build a peptide library using either known what is already there, or you use a bioinformatics approach. We used to use a facts and fiction bioalgorithm that defines a polypeptide hormone library and make it libraries. And then you screen those library for different cell line and get the starting binding and, and get the receptor binding. And that will give you a starting point. So that is the one aspect of the starting this. The second aspect is that you have a starting point. For example, PYY or GLP-1 or calcitonin, they're all circulating and you know they're bioactive peptides, but they're not drug-like molecules. You start that from there and convert them into a drug-like molecule during the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. So you start either of those phase, depends on what, uh, what the goal is. Once you have those peptides, either a starting point to convert into back to peptide or the leverage that you work on a target, the second stage is a target selection. In peptide therapeutic, this is also a very critical point but it's not harder compared to the small molecule. So the target selection and validation of the target and the confidence of target, that are very critical because peptides are generally are very uh, specific, highly potent. They are, they're not toxic. It's just toler tolerability that we really need to figure it out, right? Because they are endogenous ligand, they're in the body, right? When you start with. So that is a target selection. The third stage comes a peptide optimization to taking converting a native molecule into a biodrug-like molecule. And that is the real mate, where you do medicinal chemistry, molecular pharmacology, you do stabilized peptide for PK properties, stabilized peptide for safety, and you do a lot of SARing. That is step number optimization. That's the way a lot of technology has been developed uh, in the past few years, how you optimize peptide to better, better pharmacocytical property and pharmacochemical uh, properties, those physicochemical properties. Then it comes to formulation and delivery. So once you have this, then you develop a formulation that is good for, uh, for peptide delivery. And then not only formulation good for peptide, you need to have a highly soluble peptide so you don't use too much volume, injection volume to treat patient. So you need to have a highly soluble peptide, highly stable peptide uh, in our... It is very important to select what is the delivery mode you're gonna use. Are you gonna once in a day, twice a day, depot, implant, because that will change a lot of direction and formulation of their aspect. So once you have that part, then it comes to preclinical study, CMC, uh, TOTS, pre handy So this is a one 
a huge segment that people do. From here onward, it's new beast comes. That comes to phase one trial to, to assess the safety with uh, a smaller group of patients. Once you have successful there, you go to phase two, whether you do dose response curve uh, and studies and then uh, other assessment, uh, treat, intend to, not intend to treat, get the therapeutic efficacy. And then third is where you intend to treat the patient, phase three. That's the very huge study where you really go for the therapeutic areas. Once you have the phase three data, then challenge comes the NDA, submission of NDA, because before that you do IND. And NDA stands? NDA is a, a new drug application. IND is the investigational uh, new drug application. So once you new drug about NDA, that is a long process about, it takes about six months or a year to submit, but where you are in mercy of FDA. They want to make sure two things, safety mm-hmm. and the manufacturing process. If you remember in 2018 or 19, 20 drugs may not been approved because of the CMC issue. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the reason they do pre-approval inspection where the manufacturing has been done. So once, once the FDA is satisfied there, then it goes in the market and then you do phase four study where you follow on this study. So it's a pretty long process, it's my live view. And it is tweaked based on what product you take, a small molecule, peptide, biologics, like mm-hmm. Right. So I wanna um, go through sort of the, the phase one to commercialization, you know, when we go from preclinical into man. So what um, studies are done specifically to get into phase one? So phase one uh, is mostly you take healthy patients. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, but before phase one, so like the tox package, what, what information do you have to have first before you can even put it into a human to test okay. safety? That's a good question. So the information where that you, are, you need the entire package of the efficacy and a safety potency and, and uh, what do you call um, you have to have a full uh, physical chemical characterization. Mm-hmm. Then you do a toxic study, PK study, but toxic study generally required in two different animal species. Okay. One is small and one large. For example, a small is rat, a large could be monkey or dog or depends upon what kind of. Sure. If the safety profile looks good in those two species, and you have a PK profile looks good, better half-life. It depends on what you're looking for. It. If the PK profile looks good, then you move on to the next step. And what you do at that point, you have established a, a, a IB, which is called investigational brochure. Uh, and that is being basically selecting the patients, clinical sites, mm-hmm. and do the study. Uh, phase one, safety study. These are healthy people, so they, they don't have a disease. And sometimes they do the disease too, but a bit predominantly healthy. And if these drugs are safe in human, just like they were safe in animal, then you go for phase two study. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and uh, if not, then you're done. <laughs> Generally, and you, you find that out early, right? Because you it gets find out much early. more expensive as you go on. That's right. Once you go there, then you just money. You have to put a lot of money and going, and, and there's no into it. Right. But uh, 
peptides are generally, uh, um, I don't want to put the quantitation number, but generally are safe in the phase one, because if they are endogenous ligands, then they move on to phase two. So in the phase two, you do a different doses, mm-hmm. dose response study. And you include some patients, uh, a mechanism of action study. And, uh, and then also you, you, see, you take some patients that have that particular disease, not other uh, diseases, not complicated patients. Just if somebody has one treat uh, A1C, just keep it a straight A1C patient to have lower, but you don't have a kidney problems, you don't have other problems. And you have to make sure you don't have confounding disease states. Confo- could, yeah, you're right. have, yeah, mess up the analysis of your specific endpoints. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, yes. diseases and other things that have to be, I mean, when you look at what profiles of patients can go into a trial, it's very, very specific because again, it, it's a study, right? So yeah. we have to be careful that we don't think a drug works when it really doesn't or doesn't work when it really does. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that is right. I mean, I mean that's, that's the challenge. You want to keep focus yeah. on what you care about. It. Right. And that's what we talk about, our inclusion and exclusion criteria right. Right, for our patients. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it, people, I mean, see, it takes a lot of uh, back and forth discussion, this selecting uh, exclusion and inclusion criteria with IRB, Investigation Research Board, Review Board. Yeah, and maybe just, to, sorry, because you brought it up, the IRB, can you just talk a little bit about what the IRB is in charge of? This is a group of bodies, mostly physicians. They are there to guide you what kind of patients, a clinical population you need to study, what kind of inclusion criteria you need, you kind of inclu- exclusion criteria you need. And it, it just, in a simple manner, is an advisory board for, yep. for clinical studies. Excellent, great. Yeah, and once you get the a dose response, you identify the dose, generally one or two. You go for six dose point in a phase two, and based on different uh, uh, studies, you come up with one or two doses, final dose, mm-hmm. that you like to move on phase three. And phase three is, is pretty complicated. It takes a lot more, uh, uh, number of patients, but the key point in phase three is you go with intent to treat the patient uh, because that's the real world thing. Mm-hmm. Then you're not gonna see if this patient have other disease or not. Yes, keep them as well, but make sure you know what they have. Yeah. Just, just so kind of like intent to treat patient. Mm-hmm. And that analysis is uh, that data and the data analysis were critical at that stage. You have to uh, PK analysis very critical at that stage. Toxicology assessment is very important. That drug drug interactions very important at that stage, and that's the place the small molecules, a lot of small molecules, have challenges. Mm-hmm. Attrition rate uh, from phase one to to commercialization for small molecules thirteen percent. Only thirteen out of hundred peptide I mean, say, small molecule that goes into the clinic survives after phase three, mm-hmm. whereas 25% peptides survive after phase three mm-hmm. uh, out of hand. Yeah. So you can see that peptides are more success rate. Right, right. Um, and so, I mean, it, there's there's two paths we can go here. And I, I, I do want to talk a minute about, about that 
what you just said that peptides tend to have a higher success rate. And, and it is, you already mentioned that we're looking at, you know, endogenous ligands, we have high specificity. Um, as we though do our medicinal chemistry on peptides, we do introduce, you know, non-natural or non-proteinogenic amino acids to them and that, and they can take on other properties. So have you seen, um, an, an influence of that as we've gotten our hands on these other, you know, amino acids that we can incorporate into peptides? Has that changed at all? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, Wendy. We, this question comes all the time when you, uh, it's been coming for last 15 years or okay. so. And because when you incorporate the non-natural amino acid, you tend to increase immunogenicity. And immunogenicity is one of the key components. Genotoxin immunogenicity is very critical thing that FDA is looking for it. So, uh, so here is my, my thought, just me. Uh, when early stage in my career, we always want to use natural amino acid for the sake of the same fear. Do not introduce non-natural amino acid unless you really need it because we have mastered that you can do a lot of things that non-natural amino acid does by natural amino acid as well. The trick there is very simple language I can tell you. Uh, suppose phenylalanine and the leucine is broken down by endopeptidases, right? If you replace the leucine and confuse them with the glycine, then they confuse by that, right? The same thing what we used to do, we take the uh, uh, phenylalanine and we make a non-natural phenylalanine, a homophenylalanine or methylalanine or whatever you do, and it became non-natural and enzyme confused. So you, the goal is here to confuse the enzymes not to break the peptide, right? Mm -hmm. So you can do by natural amino acid. Of course, there's other reason for non-natural amino acid for binding and pocket and all these things. So we try to minimize that. And at the same time, if you look at that, all the peptide drug that has been approved, Mm -hmm. There's so many non-natural amino acids there. Yes. One of the fascinating examples that I see from Felix Degralix, yes. that you know very well. Degralix out of 10 amino acids, six of them are non-natural amino acids. Yes. Yeah. And this is given by Depot, right? Which is once in a month or they were working once yeah. a month. If it is a Depot and it releases over a number of uh, months mm -hmm. and you have six non-natural amino acids that's never been in studies, we haven't seen much of immunogenicity there, yes. right? Absolutely. So the argument of having non-natural amino acid is going to cause immunogenicity, we don't know. Yeah. The problem is immunogenicity, you only know when you're going to human. You don't get to know that. Now we have some tools that mm -hmm. you can predict in cell, on cell and in silico, uh, epivax and other, mm -hmm. but not in those days. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I do want to give a shout out to Guangtin Zhang, who was the um, person who discovered uh, Degarelts at um, Bering back in the day. And it's for the treatment of prostate cancer. Um, and as you mentioned, it is, it's a depot and it's a, it's a really interesting molecule. Everybody should go look up Degarelics and um, look at the history of it. Maybe I'll, I'll try and find some, some, some links that I can no, I'm gonna say, I can do. I love that molecule. And, uh, and, um, but, it's just because of non-natural amino acids, mm -hmm. the story. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I, I do want to get back into the, yeah, I really wanted to pick your brain on the, the process of approval, but just to say that I think the other thing that I experienced looking at non-naturals 
is that you can get some off-target activity if you start putting on like hydrophobic small molecule mimics. And so there, there's a game that you play, you know, between the, the specificity of the, the peptide and getting the potency. So it's, it's, that's, it's fun. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely right. I mean, uh, and that, uh, that's the reason uh, some non-determinacid were useful because... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we went through sort of the process for a traditional therapeutic, but something that I'm getting more interested in, you know, I'm doing some work with CEM on um, neoantigens. So we're, you know, working with our instruments on how you really get those out there efficiently. Uh, can you talk about how that approval process is different than the traditional peptide or, or small molecule therapeutic? Yeah, you mentioned about CEM. And we talked about that synthesizer uh -huh. uh, earlier. So yeah. let me just say a couple sure. words and then I'll just come to there. CM's uh, uh, synthesizer, I mean, I'm very familiar with that, like I mentioned to you in early 2000, uh, okay. when there was not much of synthesizer, we brought in our uh, lab in Amblin, developed a methodology. And the very first uh, long, in my opinion, um, was nesfetin, 82 amino acid peptide that we made in our lab using peptide synthesizer after developing it after a couple of years. Uh -huh. That time it was not recognized well because, oh, it's going to cause chiral impurities and all these things. We made peptide the same, so many different methods, did the chiral purity, uh, different batches from the CEM synthesizer, different batches from other synthesizer. And at the same time, John Elwood was also working on insulin uh, synth uh, fragment synthesis. So uh, having that technology out there uh, will definitely help in new antigen system, mm -hmm. uh, in new antigen uh, uh, therapeutic area. So the new antigen peptide, or you can personalize vaccine, is really very, um, it's a new area. Mm -hmm. A lot, uh, lot of progress has been done. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, new antigen therapy or personalized vaccine, uh, I, don't, I don't think I need to go there, but- And they, people can refer back to episode two with Trishul Shah if they wanna oh, learn more okay. personalized medicine. Yeah, uh -huh. so, uh, so any antigen, I mean, there's two, uh, uh, there's several drug in a clinical trial right now. And uh, I, I am impressed with the two ones. One is a, a GP WAC, which is a, a, a what they call its consortium. Eight companies consortium in Europe, and they are developing this personalized vaccine. It's Gloma acti uh, actively personalized uh, vaccine consortium. They call uh -huh. GAPVAC, okay. VSE. And they are treating for uh, glioblastoma. And they're using a mixture of about 20 peptides, about 10 to 15 amino acid. The other one is in neon therapeutics, NEOPV1. And they, they're using similar antigen and vaccine and the mixture about eight, four or eight peptide um, mixture and the sequence about eight or 10 amino acid. So the synthesis, uh, uh, synthesis is very challenging because it has to be done very fast. So let's talk about uh, what is the process different here uh, uh, versus uh, the traditional peptide therapeutic. Uh, in the peptide therapeutic, you have a lot, long uh, time. Here is it's kind of like a you needle to needle approach. Time is very short. You cannot go to approval process the way traditional is going on it. So the approval process here should be you uh, all the data that is comes out goes on the database 
where a on-time on review happens, number one. On-time review regulatory uh, has to happen because there's no way uh, you can have a peptide synthesize formulation, conjugated immunoadjuvants, uh, uh, do all the quality control and the safety, and then you go back to submit the document the review. It's not enough time, patient will die at that time. Yeah. So this whole process has to happen uh, as it goes. So in order to do that, the synthesis manufacturing capability has to be very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the, like I mentioned, uh, microwave is a speed where synthesis, synthesis can be done very fast mm-hmm. and you can formulate very fast and they do quality control very fast. So that process, the speed is in a manufacturing thing. But the main, there's not a clear guideline for in FDA, by the way. So uh, because they are developing for the number of decades, what should be the guideline should be has been very important, has uh, been given good importance, Eber, uh, personalized med- medicines. So they're working on it. We don't have a good guideline. But the good thing is that you can justify your, uh, your data because we don't have a guideline. So whatever it comes out to be, as long as you can justify Mm-hmm. For the efficacy and the safety, that's what the uh, regulatory authority should look for it. Mm-hmm. For it. Yeah. Now, so the process there is that I don't know very well the regulatory process yeah. of the personalized vaccine yet, especially new antigen. Mm-hmm. But what I what I gather based on information and learning is just the uh, regulatory agency and the clinical development they have to work hand in hand and yeah. everything has to go online. So uh, they sp- uh, so the process goes. So yeah. that's where I see it. Now, uh, there was a, uh, I don't know how much familiar with uh, Ilan Gubina. She is a guru and FDA and about new antigen. Oh. Her spelling E-L-E-N-A mm-hmm. and G-U-B-I-N-A. Okay. Um, and she has talked about some of those challenges of personalized new uh, antigen uh, specific therapeutic vaccine, specific to therapeutic vaccine. And she has given a, a talk back in um, early days mm-hmm. uh, in 2019, I believe. So, so there's a lot more have developed at that, that time. Mm-hmm. So here's in the process, of all this approval process, review process, and all these things. Uh, so here, phase one to phase three, they're all collapsed in one, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're all going in parallel. So there's a couple of things that IND, um, IND application, investigation application is very critical. Mm-hmm. A- and that every, uh, I think every developer should be thinking very carefully. Mm-hmm. Number one, the sourcing of the tumor and normal tissue has to be very well documented and validated in the process. Mm-hmm. Number two, the control process and accuracy of algorithm predicting software. So in new antigen, what happened, you take the uh, tumor cell, you, you identify the bioinformatics peptide using bioinformatics and algorithm. Most of the company have their own proprietary algorithm. And the control process for accuracy is very, very critical there. FDA is looking very carefully on that. Mm-hmm. 
lot of people don't pay attention to that. Number third, you need to have a, a, what do you call a control strategy for prevention of potential autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. Those people are not looking for that. Yeah. And there's a lot of predefined acceptable criteria for impurity for the drug substance and the drug product. The critical thing is you predefine your impurity criteria. And that is very critical for manufacturing uh, uh, and also quality control. They need to work with the developer, clinical developer, very closely to make sure that impurity profile of both the drug substance and the product has to be defined very well. Mm -hmm. Because you have a very short time, you take an injection tumor antigen and you're making right there, you don't know what the impurity will be done because impurities has not been put in the algorithm that the, the mm -hmm. new antigen comes. So that's the one thing. And of course, we talk about that product lead time and patients in case of manufacturing failure, you're going to lose. If anything wrong in the manufacturing, patient's going to lose. So these are regulatory things where they're looking for it. We don't, uh, I don't know much like I was telling you phase one, phase two, phase mm -hmm. two, how to do it systematically. There's a lot of, lot of things being developed right now. There's right. a four, four or five peptide-based new antigens right now in the clinical phase, uh, clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So um, what are good resources for people if they want to go, you know, look up what clinical trials um, are ongoing with peptide therapeutics? Um, is there only clinicaltrials.gov or are there other um, sites that people can go to? Predominantly clinical trials. Okay. <laughs> so just go there and type peptide. Or, or <laughs> look at the company's, uh, company's uh -huh. website. Okay. All right. They're not going to tell a lot more, but uh, yeah. those are the key key sources to look okay. for. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to say you brought up another point that uh, peptide therapeutic does not have a very good resources. And for that, as you and I, you help work on it, creating a, a resource center of excellence for global peptide science institute, yeah. uh, it's virtually at least. So people have a place to go for any, anything peptide, any question related to whether regulatory or uh, manufacturing or therapeutic or target discovery, pep they want to know what how to get the peptide data of all the drug that has been approved, yeah. it should be in there, uh, all the thing. So we, are, we will work on it over time and then it will be very good resource for most yeah. of the- uh, Yeah, once we have that complete, we need to get that out there sooner than later. Um, so the other things that I wanted to, so I wanna switch gears a little bit because I have you here and your, your latest book was, was that the delivery book? Remind me. Yes, it's a delivery of peptide, a specifically implantable delivery. Okay, and so why, why did you hone in on the implantable? Yeah, so implantable delivery is a very high top, a very high uh, topic, and is, is being seen as a, a future, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if you look at that, uh, the compliance of, is compliances for a small molecule or other mm -hmm. is not met. Out of, there was a very good study published in American Diabetes Association a number of years ago, where 50% prescription has hardly been filled, refilled. 
And people don't take medicine, forget about it. They have a multiple pill. They have a breakfast for pill, lunch for pill, dinner for <laughs> pill. It's hard to forget medicine. Injections, the people don't like to take a twice a day injection or three times a day injection. They don't want to poke finger every other day to, uh, to, uh, or take the drug by IV. And uh, as you, uh, age goes, geriatric patients, uh, you don't have a, enough uh, memory to take medicines time. So implantable drug delivery uh, is being seen as a option to meet the compliances of the drug. I don't, sometimes I forget to take medicine. Right. Uh, if I, but I don't take a chronic, but for any chronic disease, yeah. it, it is gooder to have a implantable delivery. So you have a tiny, just like a, a birth implant, uh, 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 next implant, right? Implantable birth control. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you take the drug and you put in a small, tiny majestic side device and you inject in your uh, tummy or there and drug will release slowly in a steady state manner or whatever the profile you're looking for it over a number of years. I mean, so over a number of months. So say for example, six month delivery or one year, patient has nothing to worry about it. And it takes only five minutes to go and get implantable delivery. So that is an example why implantable uh, delivery technology is the future and, and there's miniature devices coming that's so tiny that uh, you can put in, it's like a, a little chip and um, microfluidic control device process of manufacturing has been developed, technology has been developed. So this book is all about implantable delivery uh, for all um, peptides and includes a couple of small, few small molecule chapters as well. That's great. And most importantly, it has a regulatory guideline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, talking about I can go back in the CMC book. Okay. In my CMC book, you mentioned the, asked the question of regulatory uh, uh, guidelines and mm -hmm. other things and the process. There's two chapters in the regulatory book. One is written by FDA. Okay. Uh, and it talks about the entire process of from phase one to phase three. Written by FDA. It's very, very challenging to get anything yes. written by regulatory authorities. Yes. And the author has given uh, own opinion, not the FDA opinion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just to be clear. And there's a, a, another uh, uh, chapter is all about European regulation. Great. How the regulatory guideline works. And this is also written by one of the people from uh, a European uh, uh, regulatory mm -hmm. uh, advisory group. Uh -huh. So those two chapters are very useful if somebody's looking regulatory guideline for peptides or other. Excellent. Oh, that's fantastic, Ben. So you did something already that I asked people to do on this show, which is to put on their like prediction hat and think about the future and what they're most hopeful for. So you've already done that for delivery of, of peptide. Um, but have you thought about, you know, what, what you'd like to see or what you think's coming in, in peptide therapeutics? Uh, Wendy, this is a great question. And it's a phenomenal way of thinking like that. I'm always up for it. Uh, and I tell you my view, the way I see it, mm -hmm. where the future direction is going. So in terms of therapeutic area, mm -hmm. and I'm going to go categorically. Perfect. In terms of the therapeutic area, oncology is area there 
tremendous opportunity for peptide-based therapy. We have not explored the intracellular targets where peptide can be useful. And so the, uh, once we explore that, you know, oh, it's a gold mine for peptide therapy. So in therapeutic area, oncology, in my opinion, is gonna grow very fast. We have made a tremendous success in metabolic disease in peptide-based therapeutic, but oncology now. Now, in terms of uh, targets, therapeutic target, then I'll go systematically. In terms of the target, again, it goes to intracellular target. Uh, for example, nuclear targets, mm -hmm. right? Cytoplasmic targets, uh, intracellular pathogens are there, mitochondrial target. They all are targets sitting inside the cell that where peptide can go. So the beauty is there, now we understand how to make a cell permeating peptides, mm -hmm. CPP. It's been protein-protein interaction, CPP is the future. Uh, we, know, we know how to get inside the cell, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to be very specific and how we'll not be accumulating it in, inside the cell mm -hmm. and how to get out of the cell. That, that side of the science needs to be developed in order to get this gold mine to access. Yes. So that's the therapeutic and target. In terms of the technology, I think I know it's a it's artificial intelligence, a lot of buzzword there, mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of opportunity in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because machine learning and artificial intelligence is fundamentally is a computational biology that we used to do it mm -hmm. in 20 years ago, but there's a lot more advancement has been done. We have a computational process has been advanced. We know how to design the peptide on that. And I tell you, there's a couple of companies are really working on this area. I mean, Peptilogic mm -hmm. has just got collaboration there and they have developed a very huge processor, artificial intelligence processor. Uh, Neurotas in Ireland, they're developing artificial intelligence to, to identify the peptides from the fruits, like apple and bananas and all those things, uh, edible fruits that we all eat. So see, they're working on that. This company in Jerusalem called Pepticon, they have done a lot of work. So, but this is an early stage. This company in San Diego developing algorithm, machine learning to fit all the, I think this is the area uh, is technology that need to be done that will be very useful tool for the designing of the peptide and optimizing the peptide and those. So that's the technology area. Second, I talk about the, uh, the third is, uh, I mean, or, or the last in the process called peptide delivery. Delivery, mm -hmm. delivery, yeah. and delivery. Yeah. yeah. The delivery is it's not about just uh, implantable device, delivery into the cell. Peptide that can deliver into the cell, biologics. Mm -hmm. That's the area. Sustain and miniature implantable device that we talk about that we don't have anything approved. We have bidurian approved very well, but implantable device need to be a lot more work. And third is oral delivery of the peptide. Mm -hmm. Oral delivery peptide is making a lot of progress. Yeah. And a and lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's four or five drugs already been there, more been approved, several companies, small biotechs working. So I think these are the areas where peptide should focus and should go.
to recap, delivery, 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 <laughs> artificial intelligence and machine right. learning, and then targets, <laughs> and, and, and the intracellular targets and, and therapeutic encounters. Yes. So this is the way I see it's great. Yeah, I think, you know, at some point, maybe not for this particular conversation, we have to talk a whole show just on delivery, because I do want to talk about, you know, right now with oral delivery, we're mostly looking at gut restricted peptides. So for these, you know, diseases specifically within the, the gut, um, but looking at moving ahead. So we'll, we'll put that for our next, uh, our next show with Ved and Wendy. Several companies are working on real delivery. Uh-huh. That peptide oh, systematic will go into systematic by oral. Uh, Great. Yeah. Using oral delivery technologies. And I'm familiar with several technologies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I hope some of those things works uh, sooner. And that will deliver the targets that are uh, systemic and uh, it will improve the bio- right. oral bioavailability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I guess, to, you know, to sort of like wrap up, I think one thing I'd like to do is point out, I did make a mistake. It's episode three with Trishal Shaw that has personalized medicine. Episode two is actually with Tina Bovel and Andrew Bowler on um, biocatalysis. So oh, but, oh. But folks can look back and, and find the uh, personalized medicine episode with Trishal. And one thing he did mention, by the way, I'll just note was, was how collaborative the FDA is in that space. So that that's, that's really fantastic to hear from him. Um, I gave you the name uh, without permission, but uh, since this is in public domain, I mm-hmm. hope this fine. <laughs> I'll, uh, yeah, I'll find a link to see if we can find some more information on that as yeah, well. She has given a talk at the uh, U.S. Pharmacopoeia okay. uh, uh, workshop. Mm-hmm. And then she also has given a talk at another conference uh, uh, in the same year uh, that that was specifically uh, on the session on new antigen vaccine. Okay. Will, so, you, will you be um, a, a contributing to the U.S. Pharmacopoeia this year? Yes, I'm already part of the uh, US Pharmacopoeia mm-hmm. and we have the, uh, I'll send you, we already finalized the agenda for the workshop. Right. And I'm chairing the session, uh, I think the last day or third day. Right. So we're doing a virtual. So rather than having it two days, we're doing the three different sessions, half, half a day. That's great. And we finalized the agenda and uh, for the program it should be out, already out there. If not, then it should okay. be coming out very right. soon. And yes, I'm still part of the U.S. Pharmacopoeia's Peptide Expert Committee. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Bud. Thank you, Wendy. It is great to talk to you. And uh, it's a good podcast. And I hope uh, a lot of people uh, uh, take advantage. And it's a good resource from them, for them. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Exploration Science. As always, we welcome your feedback and also your suggestion for topics that you'd like to see covered. If you enjoy this episode, please like and share with your community. Thanks again for tuning in.